0: Special bonus podcast. I'm joined by none other than our very own renowned conference going paper publishing academic, Manchester football historian and City fan, let's stress that, Dr. Gary James. Dr. James is an honorary research fellow at De Montfort University and writes on all aspects of Manchester football, not just City, and specializes also in the history of female involvement in the game. And Blues, I'm holding in my hands his latest book. Manchester City folklore what every blue needs to know and blues this is just fabulous an absolute must read welcome to the bolt from the blue podcast Dr Gary James
1: hi thanks that was a great introduction
0: have you recovered and feeling a little better after last night's defeat against Lyon oh yeah
1: it was just one of those nights I was sat there pretty depressed for most of the game to be honest for some reason, it just did not feel right. We made mistakes we wouldn't normally make. I wish Aguero had been on from the start. Same with Sane as well, actually. For some of the players of, of the quality of hours to make some of the mistakes we made. Yeah, it just was one of those nights. I mean, I'd best to sort of forget it,
0: really. Gary, you reminded us all on Twitter after the game, and I'm quoting you from one of your tweets. Putting last night into perspective, it was a Champions League game, not a third-tier match at York, and the 20th anniversary of that is coming soon, isn't it?
1: Oh, it is, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I was at the um, West Yorkshire branch of the City Sports Club the other night, and they are actually talking about going to York on the anniversary day of that game, um, just for for something to eat, but basically just to reminisce about the day at York.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you you also mentioned that if that's failing, then there's no hope. Uh, Well, Gary, you're the man who wrote, in my opinion, the greatest ever work on Manchester City, and that's Manchester the City Years. You're renowned for your meticulous and exhaustive research. And this new book, Manchester City Folklore, is very, very different. For a start, it's... 205 pages, which is a little bit light for you. If you could, could you please tell us how this book is different from your normal work, your scholarly work, and what led you to go in this direction?
1: Yeah, I I suppose the, the starting point really is that I wanted to create the kind of book that you can dip into you know, the sort of book that would be uh, perhaps a gift for, you know, Father's Day, Mother's Day, birthdays or whatever it may be, Christmas. I wanted that sort of book, the the book that somebody would, would pick up, spend, you know, a few minutes reading a section, put it down, pick it up a bit later and just each time they picked it up, I wanted them to gain something, whether that was either learning something about the club's history or just being reminded of some great moments, great days and and also I wanted it to be quite colourful. The reason that I, I did this was I was conscious that, although I've done an awful lot of um, writing on the club for for years now um, and produced some really sort of heavyweight books, as you mentioned, Manchester City is is, is one of them. Uh, and one, one of my books is about sorry, half a million words. Um, but, you know, so they are big, heavy, meaty books. But what I wanted to do was create something that was a bit different so that it was accessible to all. Uh, one of the things that struck me, well, mostly in recent years, but certainly over the last sort of 10 years since the takeover, was that a lot of people in the media have constantly talked about Manchester City as if it's a new club, as if the club had never existed, as if the club had never achieved anything. You know, they talk about no history and, and you know, all that sort of stuff. And And so what I wanted to do really was remind people that, The struggles of the late 1990s, you know, the relegation to the third tier and all of that, was that was the bit that was out of character with City's full history, really. If you look at the sort of 125 years plus of a club's existence, and you go through it step by step, those seasons of failure, we remember them. They were painful, they hurt, they were uh, awful, but... In the end, it's you're talking about a few years here and a few years there. You know, the 1990s, for example, we finished fifth in the Premier League, two years running. Now, that wasn't failure. That was challenging for the title to some extent. I mean, OK, we didn't actually win a major trophy at that time, but we were there. What happened was that we had this, this bad spell that that sort of set the tone. It became easy for the media and, it, to be fair, for, for the club itself to sort of talk about... City as being this failed third-tier football club that somehow, somehow became the richest club on the planet. You know, somehow got this investment and started to challenge. As if that was everything about City... And so the idea was the book would actually say, you know what? We, we won all these trophies before we were this. We had a culture. We, we did, you know, some crazy stuff like the banana craze, but, but we had some fantastic moments. We won a European trophy, a major European trophy before Liverpool had, you know, so it was, it was trying to remind people of, of that. So hopefully I've managed it and I wanted it to be totally sort of accessible so that anyone can pick it up. Have a look, you know, whether it's an eight year old child or, you know, a 98 year old grandparent or great grandparent or whatever. I, I didn't, I didn't care. I just wanted it to be accessible.
0: Yes, that's right, Gary. The great thing about it is it's not a story and, and the units in the book are not chronological, so you can pick it up and put it down and keep coming back to it. I think the first book I read of yours was the one on Joe Mercer Football with a Smile. Other great ones that, that city fans should know about. There's, there's another great one that I have called From Main Man to Banana Citizens. Farewell to Main Road, of course. A lot of these things, I thought some of them were out of print. Just uh, went on Amazon, had a quick look around. And there are people selling these great books uh, secondhand. Some of them are uh, available text only in uh, on Kindle um, for people's tablets. So it really is fantastic. And as you said, the subheading of the book is What Every Blue Needs to Know Now. One of the things that one of our listeners said about the book was that it's really great as ammunition. And I asked him, what do you mean ammunition? And he said, well, you know, we get all of this flack from Liverpool supporters and United supporters in terms of the fact that they think we've got no history. I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned the fact that we were, we actually were the first team, I think, to win a domestic cup and a European cup in the same season before any of these other big clubs. Could you give us a few more examples of, of little snippets of ammunition that we can use, particularly when we're in debates with Liverpool fans and United fans?
1: Well, it's, it's strange that it? I think Liverpool have become the team that see other fans that are most upset by the fact that we've started to win trophies again. Um uh, you know, I think they had United all those years sort of suddenly overtaking their record and, and now I think they fear that we're going to do the same. But so, so some Liverpool fans have got quite bitter in what they've said. So the ammunition, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's, it's quite simple. Uh, this is actually isn't in my book, but you've got to think about the reasons um, the football clubs were formed. Now, Liverpool, the basic reason Liverpool was formed is that a guy owned a football ground and wanted to make money from it because originally Anfield, Everton played at Anfield and then Everton moved to Goodson Park and left Anfield. So the bloke who owned Anfield suddenly had a football ground and he wasn't going to be able to make any money out of it. So what did they do? he do? He created a football team. So right at the beginning, Liverpool was only created because a bloke wanted to make some money out of a club, out of people. Whereas City was created... Uh, there's a long, long story, and I, I include some new information in the new book, which is talking about who founded the club and stuff like that. But, but basically, going right back to the 1870s and 1880s, City was founded as a church team, Saint Mark's, and the main reason for that was to, as a, as part of a community activity, part of community initiative, really. And it's one of those things where, in the end, it doesn't matter who came up with the idea, it doesn't matter how many people get involved at first, what does matter is that that community, year on year, kept growing, until eventually, you know, they started to represent the team who evolved into Hardwick Football Club, representing a bigger district of Manchester, and then eventually, in 1894, it became Manchester City, so... Each time, it, its community grew. And if you look now at what Sheikh Mansour and, and the owner, the owners and the board and everything have, have done, they're still investing in that community, the money that they've put into, obviously, the academy. But not just that, you know, they've, they've been building houses. They've been giving, you know, really making life better for people through City and the community. Straight away, ammunition, Liverpool, a club, <laughs> a club that was founded by somebody who wanted to make money. city founded by... as part of a community initiative. Another bit of ammunition, I suppose, for Liverpool. You just have to look at attendances. And I know we get an awful lot of flack. And last night's game, clearly it wasn't a full house, right? And, you know, we we can talk about that. But the fact is that our average attendances now are bigger than they've ever been. But go way back. And our record crowds in the the 1930s were incredible. As far back as 1911, 1910-11, we were the best supported club in the entire league, 40 years before Manchester United achieved that beat. And this sort of shows you, really, when you compare us to Liverpool, you know their record crowd is something like 62,000, I think it is. Ours is 84,000. So we may not always fill our stadium for Champions League games, but in terms of loyalty, you know, you look at our record over the decades, uh, over the last century, and uh, we have always been one of the, the great teams. When we got... We got relegated in 1983. There's a the section in the book where I just sort of put 1983 and a page, really, and nothing more than that. And I sort of spell out the position that City was in on that day, that we got relegated in 1983. And I, I remember, oh, I remember that day is the worst day of my footballing life. I, you know, I was sat in the north stand, just behind, the, well, just to the right of the goal, as, you, as the television cameras sort of look at it, um, and. The first time I ever appeared on on television, if you like, is a member of that crowd as the ball goes in the net um, when when, when Reddy Antich scores for Luton. So you know it's 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 painful, and the, and I can see myself you know as a young boy sat on the um, uh, in the north stand. Um, but yeah, so um, on the day we got relegated in eighty three, we had spent more seasons in that to- in the top division, the top flight. Manchester United, it was something like seven more seasons in total. Um, and there was only a, a handful of clubs that had appeared in the, the top flight more than us Arsenal, Everton, uh, Aston Villa, Liverpool. I think, I think that's it, actually. You've seen the book anyway, but I think that's it. Um we also, in terms of trophy su- success, on the day we got relegated, we were only three major trophies behind United. And I know, OK, we're three trophies behind United. But when you compare that to what happened in the 90s and the 2000s, when United suddenly went on this incredible run where they won everything, um, and we went on this run where we lost everything, if you like. You know, we, we struck down the divisions. So the book, really, is part of my attempt to sort of say, look, it's... it's the The 90s and those sort of City losing pace, that's out of character. We were second only to Arsenal in the 1930s as a giant. You know, people eagerly looked forward to City-Arsenal games in the 30s because it was, you know, the Northern Giant against the Southern Giant. And if you look at attendances, they quite often got bigger attendances than the Manchester Derby or any other games between Arsenal and Tottenham and and other teams in London. Um, So we were this giant of a game. Obviously, we all know about the late 60s and early 70s and, and the, the, the glamour of the Belle Summer Somerby, Mercer Allison years and, and so on. Um, but it, in a sense, I thought, now's the time to do this book because also our own fans or our younger fans are probably being brainwashed by this as well and probably thinking we were this failed club that suddenly got rich. And, and yes, we at the jackpot. We definitely hit the jackpot. You know, I'm sure... Liverpool and other clubs would would love to have the owners we've got because it's not just about the money; it's about what they're doing to to, to Manchester. Um, but it, but it's, it's one of those things. We were the lucky ones, but we we were lucky for a reason, really, and that's because they saw a club that was worth investing in because they knew they had the fan base and they knew that if things get big, they will get big, you know, really big for Manchester City. On that fateful
0: day in 1983, Gary, did you get a first? a good first-hand look at David Pleat doing his uh, silly run up and down the touchline. Oh, Running across that pitch. And, and he ran, was, a lot of people
1: forget this, but he actually ran to the Luton captain that day, which was Brian Horton. Who, you know, 10, 10 years later, we well, we said Brian who we said it, but 10, 10, years, 10 years later, he actually gave us some pretty exciting football for a while. It's, it's funny, you mentioned the Joe Mercer book. Um, it's worth it's so worth me just uh, talk about that for a second, because that that is the book that I loved writing the most. Um, I was fortunate, when I did my first book, the From Main Men Banana Citizens book that you also mentioned, um, there's a long story about how I got to do that. But anyway, one of, one of the things um, that happened was that the guy I was writing that with um, uh, knew Joe Mercer. And he said, as part of this book, um, I'll get Joe Mercer to write the foreword. And anyway, unfortunately, Keith who was doing it, with that, uh, passed away. But his his wife said to me, um, continue the book, which I did. Um, and then she gave me Joe Mercer's address and, and suggested I write a letter. So I wrote a letter to Joe Mercer, and I got a really nice um, message back saying, um, come up and and see us. You know, basically bring bring you know bring your ideas forward, um, and and we'll. we'll I'll I'll do it basically. So I didn't realize at that point that Joe was suffering a little bit with um, dementia. It was it turned out to be Alzheimer's but he was suffering a little bit. He wasn't too bad but he was he was suffering a little bit. Anyway, it turned out that at the time uh, I asked if I asked if I could take my dad because I was I was 20 was it, at the time um and my dad is obviously an absolutely obsessed city fan and uh joe Mercer, from malcolm arson was the greatest period of his life and all this sort of stuff man so we end up and on the day that we were supposed to be going up my dad's car just wouldn't it, it broke down it just wouldn't start so the only thing we could do was my dad managed to borrow a basically a white transit van from his works where you know he, he works at this so we we end up driving over to to um, the Wirral where Joe and and his wife Nora lived, and we're driving, on. and then just as we get in close, we realise we're in a white transit van, and my dad says we can't pull up outside Joe Mercer's house in a white transit van. <laughs> right. We just can't. We just can't do that. So we end up, and we were a little bit early. So we end up. We sort of drove past the street where they lived, and then we came back and we sort of parked up on this. Street at the bottom really So so we could actually see their house But we thought that we were sort of Well hidden and, and so on Anyway, we sat in the van and we're talking a bit And we're thinking it, it, We're about 15 minutes early So we can't, we can't turn up too early Um But, you know, so As it got closer to one o'clock We sort of think, right, now we can go and it's, it's almost time So we go across the road, we walk up the street We knock on the door The door opens and it's Joe Mercer and he just stands there staring at us and he just smiles and he goes, come in. He didn't even ask you what he was, he said, come in. And then he, and then his wife, Nora, who um, was a lovely, she only died a couple of years ago, but a lovely lady, uh, Nora, then peeks around the door herself and says, you've been hiding in that transit van at the bottom of the street, haven't you? <laughs> and, and she said, yeah, and she, she said, you should have just pulled up, you know, and, and from that moment, it was so welcoming. Joe was fantastic. He was suffering a little bit of Alzheimer's, but we talked and it it turned out that, you know, that day I decided I, I wanted to write about Joe's life. Unfortunately, I mean, I met Joe a few other times after that, um, and he, he did get worse, unfortunately. And the last time, he, he didn't have a clue who I was, um, and it was it was quite sad. But to be fair, Nora made sure that he still kept out and about, and and she, you know, she 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 gave him a fantastic final few years, um, and he died on his on actually on his 76th birthday in his favourite armchair, and you know, there's some great stories from the family about that. Really, we it, it, it sounds sad, but in a sense. It was it was a good it was a good day um anyway um it, after he died I realized that, well I, I was tied up with another book and I couldn't get I couldn't do the book straight away but after he's died I realized I really had to do it so I got in touch with Nora and eventually she said oh don't waste your time only do the book if you think you really want to and I said I I really want to <laughs> um, and it I started it thinking I would write about it just his his City period. But as soon as I started to dig into it, I realised his time at City was only a very small part of his life. You know, his his days at Arsenal and Everton were much more significant in in some ways to him because he was a footballer. You know, management was a poor substitute for playing, basically. Um, But it meant that I got to interview lots of great, Players, um, I'd met and interviewed Malcolm Allison a couple of times, and, and it was just fantastic. But we used to go and visit Nora quite often, me and my wife in the end. And we used to go and visit Nora quite often in the years after I, I did the book because you know, she, she, we just sort of became um, good friends, really. And you'd turn up at her house and she'd say something like, um, I was talking to George this morning. You know George, don't you? And I go, George? George Graham, you know the arsehole. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah um and, or Bob Wilson or Jimiel or you know and she was always on the phone to somebody when we were I mean and once she definitely said she definitely said to Jimiel I've got Gary James here <laughs> as if he would know
0: <laughs> and uh, Gary uh, Joe with Malcolm presided over the European Cup Winners Cup final in Vienna against in 1970 uh why is it that that particular victory being so significant It's just like, it seems not to get very much um, publicity outside the bubble of Man City fans. I mean, that's almost been forgotten by our rivals, hasn't it? Yeah, Uh, you you know, and it's it's an odd one, this, because the
1: the reason why it sort of got forgotten, I guess, is that it clashed with the FA Cup final replay, which was staged at Old Trafford between Chelsea and Leeds, I think it was. Um, So the BBC chose to put... The FA Cup final replay on television. Now, highlights of our game were shown late night on ITV. I think it was, but but were shown very very late. You know, it, it, and and it was only highlights. It wasn't live. Whereas every other final perhaps would have been live or certainly extended highlights. So that's part of the reason. We also played a Polish team so, you know, the crowd was low so people sort of, if you do mention it again, they talk about the crowd as if that's, you know, significant, um, not realising that there's there's all sorts of figures for that, but there's probably around about 10,000 who actually attended the the game that night and virtually all of those were from Manchester. So, you know, that's quite a good away following at that time to somewhere like Vienna. Um, It's it, for me, it's, yeah, it, and the film that does exist is obviously in black and white, whereas if it had been played perhaps live on television in, in England, it might have been in colour because, you know, some of the other games around that time had been filmed in colour. Um, the European Cup final, for example, I think parts of, I think there's a colour film of that, although you do tend to see the black and white film. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an odd one, but I, one thing that, there's a quote that Malcolm Allison made um, at the time, and he actually said, do you know what? Winning the European Cup Winners' Cup in 1970 was the greatest achievement uh, up to that point by any English team, right? And in Europe, and you start to oh yeah, cool. you know, of course it is. But then he actually he went through, and and so when Manchester United won the European Cup, it was at Wembley Stadium, so it basically you know feels like a home game. When West Ham, when West Ham won the cup, winners, won the Cup Winners' Cup. That was, again, at Wembley. And he, got, he went on. And, you know, they the used to be the old um, the Fairs Cup, which was played home and away. So, again, home and away. So, if you look at it, I you know, I don't agree with Malcolm Allison, but it's certainly ranked as one of the greatest achievements up until that point. I mean, you know, there's been some great European finals since, obviously, for, for lots of English teams. But up until that point, it certainly was one of the greatest and one of the the first. And it's, it's quite sad that it's not remembered. So, again... The book, the book, the idea of the book really is to say, use it as ammunition. Go in the pub, go in the, you know, go to school, go wherever it is, and say, look, we won a major European trophy back in 1970, when that was significant, when there were a few, you know, the the, the, the the few English teams entering. The, the Champions League wasn't a league, for example, you know, it it it's we well, it's ammunition,
0: <laughs> right? And c- Gary, in your new book, Manchester City uh, Folklore. I learned something that I didn't know, and that is, um, it's hard for me to, to, to take this in, but actually, in 1956, Main Road was the first ground in England to stage European football, and uh, City offered the use of the ground to United at the time, because they didn't have uh, a pitch that uh, could was um, valid for those games. Yeah, it was basically down to um, floodlights. Because Old Trafford,
1: um, although you know people say Busby was this great believer in European football, and he and he was, but the, but United's directors perhaps didn't share that same view because they didn't invest in floodlights, they didn't see the need for midweek games. Whereas teams like City and Wolves, as well, Wolves was another major um, player in this. You know they they put their, they installed their lights um, much earlier, 1953 in City's case, um, and the idea was. That they saw a future where football would be played mid midweek under lights. It would be perhaps more glamorous. Um, and so, in 1956, United won the league. City won the FA Cup. But obviously, um, there was only well one. The, only the league champions entered a European competition. And that was United against the FA's wishes. Um, but their ground wasn't suitable, so. City said, "Well, play it here, basically," and they did. And and you know what? That that year, they played. there was a few games they played there, including the quarter final. Um, and the, they staged their highest ever European home crowd uh, at City at Main Road, right? Um, and I've talked to lots of City fans who attended United European games at Main Road because. The rivalry wasn't as intense as it was, and it was a spectacle. It was being able to see European football, so you got you suddenly seeing, you know, um, Andaluc and, and other teams that you may have heard about but you'd never actually physically seen before. So from um, so that so that cup run of United, you know, they, they got the the best European crowd they've ever had, um, and there was a, a lot of focus from City fans. And what they did was, by the time they got through to the semi final. They'd installed floodlights at Old Trafford, suddenly realising, you know, obviously the attraction matter. So what did they do? They decided to move the semi-final back to Old Trafford. It was a big mistake because the crowd dropped. It was something like 60,000 for a semi-final when they'd got 76,000 and odd for one of the games, in, you know, one of the early games at, at Main Road. And people at the time... Um, neutrals at the time, because obviously, you know, United wouldn't actually say this, but neutrals said moving it to Old Trafford was a mistake. The atmosphere wasn't right. The crowd wasn't up for it in the same way. Um, so, again, yeah, I've not written all of that in the book, but, but that's ammunition. Because, you know, if you think about it, we can get criticised for European games and support on that. But United's record is for a game at our stadium. And when they moved it to Old Trafford, the crowd's dropped. Same thing happened in the 40s with the, the league. Um, United was sharing Main Road uh, for league games. They established their highest ever average attendance at the time at Main Road, moved back to Old Trafford and the crowds dropped.
0: Gary, our first European game, that was our first European Cup game was against Fenerbahce, is that right? Yes, it was the um, 50th anniversary of that a couple of days ago. Was it true that it, I think the first leg was goalless? Was it true that uh, in the uh, in the second leg, uh, Finnbach's goals, both of them, were offside? I, I don't. I mean, again, it's, it would be interesting to have a look at
1: film of that. Actually, I've not I've not studied it, but but the, I think what happened there was City were a bit naive. Um, uh, you know, I've interviewed quite a few other players who played in the game, and they they talk about the first game. That they had lots of chances. Mike somewhere we had lots of chances. We had loads of chances, but just could not score. And then, and and also, I mean, I've got a photograph somewhere um, which I don't think I've used yet in one of my books. But I've got a photograph of. Um, Fenerbahce when the drew game at Main Road, the goalkeeper is given, he's put on, uh, you know, he's, he's sort of lifted up and carried around the stadium and that, as if it was a the, the, the major triumph. Which of course it was for them, getting under of draw. But that meant that going to Fenerbahce for the second leg like going to Istanbul, it, it was it was tough. We just couldn't do it, and the atmosphere was something we'd never encountered before.
0: I heard in the second leg there were crowd invasions, there were bonfires in the terraces. that was it seems like that their reputation you know with you know some of those other Turkish teams when they 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 welcome you with welcome to hell banners they, they went back as far as that. Yeah, and it was it was a, it was an absolute shock to them. Um,
1: you know, they just did not City just did not expect this, it, which is you know a bit of a shame um, because you think the club should plan. But one of the other things that's often overlooked actually was that Tony Book was injured, so Alan Oakes Alan Oakes was captain, and Alan Oakes is a great player. But but Tony Book was a great captain, and if you look at City's league campaign um, uh, that year 68-69, and obviously the European campaign. They they didn't get going. Um, well, they didn't get going until Tony Buck was back, and so we won the FA Cup that year. Um, but if you look at results, really Tony Buck was much more of an influence than, than perhaps people think.
0: And maybe that's part of the problem now with Vincent Kompany as well. Maybe we need Kompany back. Right, that's right. And uh, I was just uh, reviewing that game and uh, re- uh, rec- uh, saw that Tony Coleman was the one who scored for City in that second leg. We lost. Uh, two one, um, we of course we we went on and we uh, I think our second year in the competition obviously we won the European Cup Winners Cup final. How long was it after that, Gary, that we had to wait before we got European football again? It wasn't It wasn't too long.
1: I mean, obviously we when you won we we won the European Cup Winners Cup. We, we as old as we played the year after, and we got to the semi final. Uh, and unfortunately, and this is you know, uh, there's lots of these in city's history, really. And we get to the semi final and we play Chelsea, and you know, uh, we also, Malcolm Arson, I think, was, was banned from getting involved. And, and Joe Mercer, um, was picked. Uh, this was one of the points that actually started to. to Unraveled the relationship really with Mercer and Allison, Joe Mercer for the game, the league games leading up to the sort of semi-final. I picked his strongest team, you know. As far as Joe Mercer was concerned, and these were the days before squad rotation. But Joe Mercer, you always play your best eleven, and you use you use a substitute if you have to. You know that was that's that was Mercer's philosophy, and you know I can understand that. But Malcolm Allison's philosophy was. We we will do whatever we can to win the trophy, um, and so Alisson wanted Mercer not to play some of his star players um, and to save them for the Cup Winners Cup. And it ended up it ended up that Allison that Mercer played all the star players. That a couple of them got injured. Joe Corrigan had a problem, um, got a bruised eye, and you know other other players got injured and stuff. Um, and then you play you know you you play Chelsea and you sort of on the back foot a little bit. Uh, and it's a, it was a shame, you know. Had we played perhaps another, a, a different, a, a non-English team, if you like, who knows what would have happened?
0: I seem to remember something about a thirty-year gap. I, re- I remember that we played TNS, I think, in two thousand and three. Yes, we went from
1: seventy-nine. Uh, sorry, yeah, we 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 got to the your UEFA Cup quarter-final in uh, nineteen seventy-eight, seventy-nine, and and then it was a gap then until two thousand and three. So that is what uh, that's. 30, yeah, thirty odd years, isn't it? Um, so yeah, I mean that quarter the UEFA Cup in nineteen seventy eight seventy nine. That was one we uh, we really should have progressed beyond the quarter final stage, um, and that was actually Malcolm Allison's fault this time because he um, he didn't play. You know, he plays like Casudena and Brian Kidd, who were well experienced in European oh, football. Oh, I loved Casudena, Wow. Yeah. Uh, but he played them sort of sparingly, he didn't play them when he should have played them, you know, but instead he gave a debut to Nicky Reed for one of the games, and, and Nicky Reid, as good as Nicky Reid eventually was, he was only eighteen, and to give him his first taste, you know, in a really important European game, is it was was a bit too much. It's not like a group stage game now, where potentially you could play some of the younger players from their debuts. You know, this was an all-important knockout stage. Yeah.
0: So, oh, oh, Gary, nineteen seventy-eight. I, 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 that's when I started supporting City as a kid, and um, I had my the, my bedroom wall festooned with my heroes Peter Barnes and and uh Gary Owen and people like this and Dave Watson and then Malcolm Allison sold them all and he made my bedroom wall collage redundant it was terrible yeah it's I mean that that's that is the real shame actually but Allison as
1: good as he was the first time just wanted to create another young team and those players we had. I mean, Dave Watson was my hero, absolute hero at the time, and, and still is to some extent. Um, but they, you know, they, they didn't want to leave. But they, they found Malcolm Allison as, as this guy who would, well, he was just going to dismantle. He didn't want the older players, the experienced players. Was this challenge... was this
0: because of his ego really? He wanted to show people just what a good coach he was. I think at this time,
1: yes. Uh, to be fair, I think it, it was. I mean, it, it's a real shame because, you know, it, it, he he was a great coach. But I suppose if you look at someone like Mourinho now, his ego has become too big. And so, you know, he's quite arrogant at times. Now, I don't think with Malcolm Allison, well, Mal- Malcolm Allison after leaving. So people say he failed after he left City. Um, but actually, he won the Portuguese league and cup double, um, which, OK, you can say, well, you know, so what? But actually, winning a league and a cup double is pretty significant, isn't
0: it? You know, it's not failure. Also, I read in your in your new book, of course, we all know about inflatable bananas in the 1980s, but you mentioned something fascinating that it seems that even as way back as the 1890s, City fans had a similar sense of humour when they went to games. Oh, yeah. I mean, it. it was quite... Famous, really, that what City fans used to do. I mean, ground, the
1: first proper ground that City played in was Hyde Road, uh, which was behind railway arches. It was in an industrial part of Manchester, really. It was dark, smoky, you know, could have been depressing. But what City did was they painted the ground, uh, which was, you know, mostly a wooden sort of old-style stadium. They painted it blue and white, so it's quite colourful. And the fans used to take in musical Instruments and and dressing fancy dress every so often, you know, not vast number of them, but they they would do it, and it it was all part of the sort of atmosphere. And, and from a very early point, if you you know, we we sort of overuse words like a, you know electric, electric atmosphere. We overuse those words now, but. Back in the 1880s and 1890s, quite a lot of City's games were described as having this electric atmosphere, which at the time was perceived as the most modern, newest idea that you can imagine, if you like, you know, like Space Age or or something, you know. So it was as if this was something really exciting, something new, something vibrant. And there was also, at Hyde Road, was a a stand, which was the boys' stand. Now, whether any girls went there, I don't know, but certainly girls did attend City games. But it was known as the boys' stand, and... It was free of any sort of parental influence. So what would happen would be that boys of all sorts of ages, up to about 18, would go into the boys' stand, make as much noise as they wanted, be really loud, be you know, anything goes, if you like, in the, in the boys' stand. It was quite a raucous place. But that stand generated this atmosphere. And then, sort of like, 20 years later, when once you get into, say, the 1930s, and all these boys are then men they're then the ones who help city get these record crowds in the 19 in the 1930s you know the eighty four thousand and so on because they'd sort of got this fantastic early feel for the club and it's the sort of thing it's difficult today i really feel that the, the club needs to do something where children of sort of the ages well say 12 to 16 you know can can have an area of their own where they're sort of they're able to make noise and they're able to, to, to generate that atmosphere. But unfortunately, the way the way things are with, with modern football, it's too expensive, perhaps, for a child to come on his own, but also you tend to be sort of forced to sit with your parents or whatever. You know, there isn't that safe, a safe environment where you're free of adults.
0: Gary, I fell in love with City as a young child, primarily because one of my friends that I played football with at the time turned up in a blue shirt. It's just a wonderful shade of blue, and I think that's what I fell in love with. I've got two questions for you. Is it known why we play in Sky Blue, and also, is it true that City at one time played in red? Well,
1: the blue, there's lots of stories about it being connected with the Masons. That Isn't, well, there's no evidence for that. There have been articles written in uh, Masonic magazines, Masonic Quarterly, I think one is called, and these are interviews with former directors and people who talk about this Masonic influence and claiming that the colour blue came, um, blue and white actually, came from that. However, the story that, that they tell is not true because they say that in 1894 the Masons paid off City's debts as Hardwick and insisted that blue and white would become a club's colours. This is not true because first of all the Masons didn't pay off City's debts. A guy called Lawrence Furness did, who had been Hardwick's secretary, and he had to delay he delayed his wedding for three years because he couldn't afford it because he paid off all his debts. But also City were wearing blue and white as Hardwick. They initially wore Blue, royal blue and white stripes in 1887 when we were first formed as Ardwick, so that's the, the earliest use of blue I've been able to find and then by 1890 they we were wearing they called it Cambridge blue but basically a pale blue, a sky blue sort of colour, you know, close, not not quite what we wear today but closer, certainly closer to that than royal blue and they wore sort of quartered shirts so blue and white panels and then eventually they you know as they became manchester City, they, they just ended up with a full blue shirt but yes, yeah, so we don't know specifically why i'm still trying to find out there are all sorts of reasons i do know that joshua palby was the secretary of the club in 1894 was the man who picked the color because joshua palby was responsible for that sort of thing but I don't know why blue. The school he went to as a boy was no, the the children wore a blue uniform there, but it's a different shade of blue. So there's, there's lots of stuff that I'm trying to look at. In terms of red, the most famous use of of red was the red and black stripes. But way back, the 1933 FA Cup final, we wore scarlet, uh, but obviously it's a bright red. And uh, for cup runs in the 1920s and in the 19, early 1930s, we quite often wore what we called Lucky Scarlet because we'd we'd won games perhaps we shouldn't have won. But we did for, for cup games, we quite often wore Scarlet. Then in 1934, um, our cup final was, we wore maroon. And maroon is the colour that, as an away colour, is the one we've worn most. Um, you know, after blue and white, maroon is actually a City's next most used colour.
0: You mentioned there the red and black stripes. Of course, we all know that Malcolm Allison uh, introduced that because he, he quite fancied the way that uh, Milan looked in, in that type of kit. But is it true that he wanted to make that? If he had had his way, that would have been our first choice home kit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something
1: that he, um, at at the time, I don't think he was too public about, but he mentioned, he did mention it. There was an interview he mentioned it around about 1970, 71, I think. Um, he did mention it in an interview. And when I interviewed him back, well, it was 92, 93, I interviewed him. I asked him, and he he said, yeah, you know, he, he had this idea, but the directors wouldn't let him, which is probably a good thing in the end, but, it's strange when you think about it, at that time, Leeds had gone from their traditional colours, which were blue and yellow, blue and gold sort of colour, um, to all white, and their fans just accepted that. So, you know, maybe maybe at a point at the time, he wanted just to look invincible. Um, but if, could you imagine now if, if, say, Pep Guardiola introduced Barcelona's colours as our second colour, right? and, then, and then said, I want Barcelona's colours to become our first team kit because it made it invincible we'd go absolutely mad. <laughs> but but when Malcolm
0: Allison says it, we just, yeah, OK. Well, you know, if Malcolm says it, it must be right. <laughs> yeah, Gary, last night, everyone, one of the big criticisms against Leon was that many people thought Sergio Aguero should have started. He's our all-time leading goal scorer, of course, but he's not just yet the top all-time top league goal scorer. Who does that honour fall to and what can you tell us about him? Well, yeah, I mean, the thing about this is, that Aguero, you know, a lot
1: of people think, oh, he's done it, he's made the record, he's, he's got, you know, and, he, and it's an incredible achievement and, and it's absolutely fantastic what what he's done. But I'm constantly looking out for all these other records and thinking, well, you know, he needs to go for this and he needs to go for that um, and maybe one day this will happen. I think in terms of um, the league, one thing that did happen towards the end of last season, he became the, the record sort of post-war scorer and then then earlier this season, he's now just overtaken Billy... Well, it, yeah, he's, he's yeah level with Billy Meredith, but he's more or less just overtaken Billy Meredith as, as the sort of third highest goal scorer. But then above that, you've got Tommy Johnson, who was a great star in the 1920s and 30s, who, when City sold him to Everton, fans... Started a bit of a boycott, really, um, because he was the star man, and our crowds dropped by an incredible number, really, you know, several thousand, because Tommy Johnson was was their hero. But then above that is Eric Brook, and Eric Brook is well, Eric Brook is an incredible player. I interviewed an old woman. I interviewed her in two thousand three. And she was talking about games in the 1920s um, that she went to as a young girl. And then she started to talk about the record crowd game of, in 1934, the 84,000 game against Stoke, which was a cup match. And Eric Brook scored the only goal of that game. And she's described this goal to me. And she said he was basically out on the wing and he was some some distance away from goal. It was like um, there used to be, if you remember Main Road, there used to be two kipaks two tunnels built into the Kipak stand and she, she was describing that she was on the touchline sort of in front of these, one of these t- tunnels, the, the tunnel closest to the plot lane end and Brooke was still some way further towards the other end if you like and she said he was out on the wing and she said he saw that the goalkeeper was off his line and he just sent this fantastic ball from the wing s- sort of spinning over uh, over all the players and then over the goalkeeper and into the top right corner of the goal. She described this and she said, and everyone said it was a fluke. Everyone said it was, you know, it, it, it was a lucky goal. And she said, but I knew, I knew that Eric Brook could score like that. Eric Brook would always do something like that. It was, And she went on about this, like in the same way as perhaps... You would go on about David Silva or Aguero. You know, this was he was such an important figure to her, such a hero to her. And she saw. I think she said something like, well, "After he kicked it, he sort of turned and smiled to the crowd as if he knew, as if he knew he was going to score." But Brooke was this great figure, and unfortunately, he, you know, he played for England and he, he he did all sorts of great stuff. But he's another player that national people just have forgotten about. Really, you know, he's the sort of player that people think. Well, he was just, a, just an average Man City player, but the truth is that he wasn't. He was an absolute star.
0: Gary, a lot of people have been talking about the picture that was painted recently by the Australian artist, and I'm sure you're familiar with that, and some people call it dressing room of dreams or dream scene. And there's been quite a debate about players who should have featured in that picture, but, but didn't. And of course, my first reaction was, where's Paul Lake? Where's Dennis Stewart? I noticed that in your new book, when you talk about the great players of City's history, there are two people that you have in your list that weren't in that painting also. And as a Northern Irishman, I'm interested in Peter Doherty and one of our other Man City podcasts, the Man City show that's hosted by Nigel Rothband. His father, who's in his 90s now, was absolutely convinced that Doherty was the greatest player in our history. And others go for Tommy Johnson, you'd included those two. Were you disappointed that those two guys were not in the painting? Yeah, I, I think the, for the painting,
1: it's 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 really tough because there's there's, there's about four or five different angles to this. I mean, one, the club commissioned it, and obviously they want to sell it, so you're going to have a, uh, it's going to be weighted towards modern players to some extent, you know, I think if it, if it had been produced in 1990, there'd have been several of the 1986 FAU Cup winning team that were on that painting, for example, so I think that's inevitable. Having said that, you know, the pl- the players from the current era are absolute legends, you know, a lot of them, but there are players that are on there from fairly recent years, but maybe in another 20 years, perhaps may not be on there. You know, uh, Mike Richards, for no matter how great Michael Richards was, maybe, you know, you could argue that in 10 years' time there might be somebody else who would have been on there and so on. So, so there's, there's always going to be debate and because it's going to be something that's sold in the shop and so on, any pre-war players are probably the least likely to be on there. So I know, you know, I'm absolutely delighted that Billy Meredith made it onto there because he was the first legend and he was the man who basically helped City become a major team in the first place. But, you know, talking about missing players, Peter Dockers Joe Mercer said he was the greatest player of all time. Danny Blanchflower, a great Spurs player, said the same. In fact, Danny Blanchflower, when he was playing for Tottenham, he actually said that he supports Manchester City because Peter Doherty played for us. And so, you know, Danny Blanstrow sat in a, he, you know, his home in Ireland as a boy, listened for City's results, read the newspapers, looking for City's results simply because of Doherty. Um, so, yeah, so it's, you're never going to please everybody. Um, there are, you know, Tommy Johnson was, was a great player. Peter Doherty, I think the, the one of the things that changed, uh, it, Peter Doherty was definitely considered the greatest ever City player well into the 1970s, even after Colin Bell had passed his peak, you know, and the injury, people were still saying, oh, not a patch on Doherty. So, you know, each generation has its own support. However, when Peter Doherty was playing, people were saying, ah, he's not he's not a patch on Billy Meredith, you know, he's not a patch on Billy Meredith, or he's not a patch on Max Wosden. He was another one who was um, quite often talked about, you know, I think with both Max Wosden and Peter Doherty, they did lose some support among City fans for, for, for a couple of reasons. And one was that, in, in Doherty's case, he actually fell out with the club during the war. He, he was a bit difficult to handle. or So the club claimed, you know, you've got to look at with it's, it's wartime anyway, but there's, you know, there's, there's some situations that, but it did mean that he left City as soon as he could after the war. With Max Woosnam, a great player, idolised, after he stopped playing for us, the general strike of nineteen twenty-six came along and he um he broke a strike, he started to drive a bus. And he and he spoke basically against the working class people of Manchester to say they need to get back to work. And an angry an angry mob of city fans turned up on his doorstep for, and and basically threatened him. So so no matter how great a player can be, sometimes they can just say or do something or move to a club and you know, fans get upset. Ni- Niall Quinn the other year, you know, quite often he was critical of our of our team when he was doing his his football punditry, and so some fans did, do not like Niall Quinn anymore. But yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the point is, we, we've got, I've got we've got some great members of Now Quinn, and he he achieved a lot of sitter, but. Simply because he criticised the club on television a few times, for, for, for some fans, that's it. And it does make you wonder, you know, our, our current stars are, are incredible and fantastic, and people are talking, you oh, know, you should name a stand after somebody, you know, after Silver, for example. I'm, I'm sort of against naming stands after people simply because it limits you to four stands for a or so four heroes. But also, you just never know what could happen in the future. I'd much rather you. Uh, did a statue or a mosaic or some sort of, you know, Hollywood style footprints, handprints, stars, whatever it may be. But naming a stand after someone, it it limits what you've got. And it's sort of way back in 1923, when City moved to Main Road, a guy called Lawrence Furness, who had been a footballer with Garton in the 1880s and had been the club's manager and had been a chairman and president and all these sort of figures, he'd achieved almost every position at the club. And he was one of the key people behind City moving to Main Road. And he was chairman at that point, And fans suggested that they should name the new stadium after Lawrence Furness, you know, probably, I don't know, Furness Park or something like that. And Lawrence Furness basically said, no, um, no man is bigger than a football club. It would be wrong to name, you know, r- wrong to name the stadium after anyone. And I still sort of feel that, even though we've got the Colin Bell stand, I still sort of feel that no matter how great a player is, we really need to find other ways to mark them because we've got, you know, uh, legends from every era. We've got decades worth of great players and it would be nice to, to see their names appearing on a wall or on the floor or in statues or in mosaics or, or whatever. You know, there must be some great ways to, to, to put tribute to these players. But but the stands, you know, I think I think that's, that's that limits us.
0: Yeah, it was so interesting to learn that Yaya Alturi isn't the only person to have plotted his copybook after leaving City. Uh, Gary, there's one question I've got to get in here. My co-host on the Bolt from the Blue podcast is... Um, A very famous City fan called Walter Smith, famous because of his performances on something called Fan Zone, where he was giving it back to the United fans when we beat United Uh 6-1. And uh, he is very interested in a player also called Walter Smith. And apparently this player died in 1972 when Walter was born. Can you tell our Walter anything about that Walter? yeah he was he was a goalkeeper
1: and he was he, he he was loved actually and there's a there's a cartoon that i've used in one of my other books i think it was farewell to main road and maybe in from main to banana scissors actually which was a derby match um in 19 oh, 1906 i think it was and on that there's a, a, a it's a cartoon that that shows the sort of game instead of a match report um, and city won but the goalkeeper Smith is being held, shoulder, carried shoulder high by the players, and it says something like "Smith, the new hero at Hardwick, you know, or the new hero in Manchester, something like." And he was loved. He was loved by fans. He was a, a great goalkeeper, but there was a bit of controversy when he when he left City because he ended up. He was accused. He was staying in a hotel, and he was accused of making some sort of improper suggestion to one of the female staff there and it turned out it turned out he was innocent but this there was this accusation that was made and so he got arrested but he was going to play football for his new team. Um, I think it was his debut actually he was going to play football for his new team that day and so the police decided that they would release him, <laughs> let him go in goal so long as a policeman stood behind the goal throughout the match. <laughs> and, and watched and watched to make sure he didn't abscond or, or <laughs> well. um, and so that's that's what happened. So so he was a great goalkeeper, and he was proved innocent in that. It was a misunderstanding, or you know, with some sort of issue. But but you know, it just shows you that it it was quite
0: a controversial moment as well when he left. Gary, our Walter, that's spoke from the Blues. Walter is six six feet five, and I just looked on Wikipedia in a few minutes before our podcast, and. I discovered that the former Walter Smith was uh, only five foot nine. Is it normal to have goalkeepers that were quite small in those days? Yeah, I mean goalkeepers—they've they've got taller because if you go through, you know, if you look at the height of a lot of our
1: keepers, there weren't many that were six foot plus until you know late on, really. But uh, you've also got to bear in mind that, I suppose, you know, the, the average height of anyone was was lower than it is today. Uh, But yeah, five foot nine. I mean, if you look at team pictures, you don't see this this sort of figure that stands out above all others as the goalkeeper. Occasionally, you do, but quite often, you know, the goalkeepers are are, are just seen as part of the team. We had another in the sort of nineteen well nineteen twenties and nineteen early sort of before that really nineteen tens. We had another great goalkeeper who it was called Goodchild, right? Um, And Goodchild was. Completely bald. No,
0: was he the one that was competing with um, with Walter Smith for the place? Yes, in the he team? was,
1: and and it varied as to which one got it. You know, it, it, for years the two were equal, but you know, one would be first choice and then the other. Um, but Goodchild uh, was was bald, right? And but fans didn't know this particular because he had he always played with his cap on, right? So he always had this cap on, and apparently that when the day fans realized, not you know, not that it mattered, but the day fans realized was. Uh, he went to make a dive. His cap flew off. And instead of then going for a ball, he went for his cap instead to put it back on, hoping nobody would recognise, uh, you know, that, he, that he was ball. Bizarre story, but you know that. <laughs> um, and then when the King visited in 1920, Goodchild was um, was playing in that game. And the lining up. And of course, he had to take his cap off because the King was coming. So the, the crowd were waiting for that moment. And when he took the...
0: <laughs> when he took his
1: cap off, they all started cheering.
0: <laughs> now, Gary, another thing that we can't finish this podcast without doing is ending the debate once and for all. Is it true or is it not true that in 1974 Dennis Law sent the rags down? Right. Oh, you, you, this is one of my favourite subjects. Right. Think back. Let's
1: to, to set to set the context. Mathematically, they would have been relegated, so the goal in the end didn't matter. But let's set the t- context. Think about the 2012 last day of the season. City are going to win the league. Before the game, City are going to win the league. All they need to do is win. Right? Well, a better United result—that's all we needed to do. That's that's the story, right? So, as far as we were concerned, going to that game on that day, we were going to win the league. We just needed a better United result. Foregone conclusion. Now, if United—well, in a sense, if United have lost, we'd have been champions. Right, so if United would have lost their game, we'd have been champions, so nothing matters. However, football isn't simply about maths, football is about the emotion as the game goes on. So, on that day with Aguero and with United, at one point, United have won the league, they're convinced they've won the league, right? And we and we end up, you know, obviously Aguero and all of that, and we end up winning the league, so it changes, right? But mathematically. City, were always going to win the league if they won the game, right? So that's so bear that in mind. So let's go back to nineteen seventy-four. Okay, before the game, United are going to get relegated because their you know their points difference is such. Unless they they win and get a, and get a better result than I can't remember the team. Now. I think it may have been Birmingham, but I might be mistaken there. But anyway, uh, unless, so if they get a better result than whoever this team was, they would be safe. So, as far as the game's concerned, at kickoff time, if United win, they could be safe. They could be safe, right? So, all the way through that game, all those United fans are urging United forward. They're hoping United can win that game. The other, it, at that point, it doesn't really matter what's happening in the real game, because they're desperately trying to win. Anyway, when Dennis Law scores, that's the killer blow. That changes the atmosphere, that changes everything. There's the pitch invasion, the players get taken off. There's actually two pitch invasions, people forget this now, but there's there's two pitch invasions. And when the second pitch invasion occurred, the referee kept the players in the dressing room. And I've interviewed some of the players about this, and I've read some of the reports since. Um, and what the referee did, he waited in the dressing room until he knew for absolute certainty that the other game had finished the way it, it was going, right, Which, which meant that United would be relegated because if the if result of that other game had changed and it would have meant that United still had the chance of staying up, he would have brought those players back out and they would have played those final six minutes or whatever it was. So when you look at it, in, in cold maths, Orvid oh, had got relegated, relegated anyway. Think about the emotion. Think about the way you feel at a match. Think about how things are going. And as far as everybody at that ground was concerned on that day, United still had the chance of salvation until Law scored. So Lord, from an emotional point of view, Law did relegate United. Just like from a you know emotional point of view, Aguero's goal won the league. Well it didn't win the league, did it? Because if you think about it, we we had a we had a better better goal difference than United before the game. All that did was cement the league. You know, you could talk about games Six weeks before, uh, as, as helping City to win the league. You know, the, the game when Company scores against United, when it swung the balance, that's pivotal. That's one of the games that wins the league. So, you know, so Dennis Law's goal mathematically did not relegate really United, but emotionally on the day, of course it did.
0: What a great answer. Now, before we finish, we've been talking so far about a lot of things in. Gary, your new book, Manchester City Folklore. But I just don't want to finish without mentioning what what I feel is the Bible for all Manchester City fans. And this is Manchester, the City years, 1857 to 2012. Guys, you can get it on Kindle, the Kindle edition on Amazon. This is the definitive book about City. And for anyone that's serious about the club, I really believe this is the standard by which all club history should be judged. And I just can't believe it chronicles every season in the club's history from its formation right up to 9320. There's like, there's a, there's more than a hundred in-depth interviews with supporters, managers and players and officials and every chairman of the club since 1972. I guess you're, you're probably always asked about when that book will be updated but i imagine it's a very difficult decision because you know every year that passes then you you could be updating that thing forever how would you answer anyone who who asks you about when you would look to update a a fantastic book like
1: that it's a tough one because obviously it takes a lot of work because it's now it's got to the stage where the book is so um big in terms of pages that it's, it's difficult to, to keep adding, adding to it. Um, so it would need a bit of a revision as well. Now, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to say oh, I, I'd do it next year, or the year after, or the year after that, but it's a very costly book to produce as well. So I, so I don't know. I constantly look at updating my stuff. You know I, I do still write material for the book. I just don't publish it. <laughs> so, so one day maybe, maybe somebody will publish it. But no, there's there's two books. Well, there's there's actually three books that I'd like to update. There's that one. The Pride of Manchester, which was the history of the Derby matches, because I think the time's right now. I, we did start to update that, me and the guy who I did it with, who was a United fan, but it's been a bit difficult because of the way the two clubs have gone in recent years for us to, to finish that. It, uh, there's, there's lots of reasons why, but you see that's on the back burner, but that may happen. And then the other book was actually the Feral to Main Road, which I know it sounds silly, but I'd like to convert that into a stadium book rather than... Oh, yeah, that's the official history of all Manchester City grounds, isn't it? Yeah. So I'd like to turn it into, you know, a proper stadium book so that there's a chapter which is actually on the last, well, more than a chapter, but there's there's a story of the Etihad Stadium properly, because there's bits in there about the Etihad Stadium, or the City of Manchester Stadium, as it it was when the book came out. But, you know, now we've been at this stadium for 15 years. There's been... An extension to it. That, well, there's been more than one extension, really, in terms of capacity. The way we've 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 done some ground improvements. There's you know all the other stuff that's happened around the stadium, the events that have taken place in the stadium. So I'd love to do that. The problem is, um, yeah, it's, it's time and finding a publisher that's prepared to take the gamble because each of those books are, are quite expensive to produce in terms of, well, size pictures you know quality of of paper and all sorts of stuff but yeah I'd love to, I'd love I certainly love to update Manchester City is soon but um, we'll see
0: for our listeners let me just tell you about some of the wonderful jewels that you can get on uh, Amazon uh, written by Dr James they've got a volume which is taken from the much-loved Big Book of City that uh, went out of print, I think, uh, certainly uh, the last time I looked. And they've taken the the daily season reminder from that, which is a section of the book where you get a fact, one fact from every season of Manchester City's history. Uh, the Big Book of City, the one I mentioned, is available in, uh, on hardcover. People are selling second-hand copies of that. We mentioned earlier Joe Mercer, Football with a Smile, from main men to banana citizens, the paperback 's available. Farewell to main road is is available. another one that 's available is the Pride of Manchester history of the Manchester City Derby matches. The hardcover is available. another one that I love, the official Manchester city football club Hall of fame that 's available also in hardcover, so guys, do look all of those books out, but the one that we 've been talking about today is Manchester City Folklore. I pre-ordered this from Amazon weeks and weeks ago. It's absolutely fabulous. Gary, we could go on forever, but you're a busy man. I don't want to impose on you too much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Tell our listeners how they can get hold of this amazing book, Manchester City Folklore.
1: Yeah, uh, I suppose the, the easiest way is to go on the website for a publisher. It's a company called ConquerEditions.co.uk, and it's uk, and It's £15 obviously it's listed on Amazon as well and it should be in Waterstones and places like that soon but certainly conquereditions.co.uk is the best place yeah, if, you, you know, if you want to find a link to it I usually have a link on my Facebook which is facebook.com slash Gary James 4 or on my Twitter which is at, at Gary James Writer but yeah just basically if your bookshop doesn't stock it ask them
0: Gary just a quick cheeky question here I think that in the early days of publication buyers were able to get your. Yourself- Signature in the book, or maybe some kind of little message. I don't know if that's still available through Conquer Editions. Is that true?
1: There are a few copies that have been signed, which they've got. And obviously, you know, obviously, if if anyone wants a copy signing, then I'm sure we can find a way of doing that. Before publication, people were able to also get their name printed in the book. Um, so there is a, a sort of role of honour, really, of, of people who've who paid for it before publication. And I'm always I'm always quite pleased when people do that because they sort of show faith in the book, and it's great to see. And, and there are some names that I recognise who have bought, you know, almost every book that I've ever produced, um, which is, is quite pleasing, really, and, and it's good to see. Um, so, yeah, I, I always appreciate that. And, I, you know, I'm always grateful when somebody buys any of my books, really.
0: Listeners, Dr. James is on Twitter at Gary James writer, and I am absolutely sure that he would love to hear your comments about the new book, Manchester City Folklore. Guys, don't forget, if you get a copy from Amazon, please, please take the time to give it a five star rating on the, on the Amazon website, because that will always make a big difference. So I think we'll wrap it up here. Gary, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Followers of the Bolt from the Blue podcast, until we talk to you again, On the next pod, we'll just sign off here with Up The Blues.